This is a story about when I was a young newspaper reporter. This story starts when I'm a reporter out in the Avocado Hills of Fallbrook, California, which is, uh, well, which was then. It's more suburban than anything now. Still very pretty, but as a country town, is tucked under Camp Pendleton, the Marine Base, north of San Diego. Uh, is in the Santa Margarita Mountains as part of the Pacific Coast Ranges. You know, they run from the Yukon to the Sierra Madre. That whole coast is one chain of mountains. Uh, Fallbrook, even now, I was there not long ago, but in the 80s, 90s especially, it felt a long ways you know, from anywhere. It was like 25 minutes through farms and chaparral and whatever past the mission, the San Luis Rey River from Oceanside. So I worked at this daily newspaper and I could make it from Fallbrook to Oceanside and 15 minutes late at night when the road was empty because you had to go type your story in at the paper. We had this uh, ancient newspaper computer system that we called Mother. And everybody called it Mother, you know, sometimes with reverence, sometimes like in agony as you see your text just disappearing. It's like, ah! And sometimes it's part of the popular two-word phrase. It starts with mother. And I'd race back and type my stories. You know, I covered the planning division meetings. I covered the avocado festival, the farm bureau. And we had the white Aryan resistance out there, too. We had uh, Tom Metzger, who had war, the white Aryan resistance. He lived there, riling up the skinheads. You know, I'd go interview him sometimes because he was always in the news. He uh, he got beat up on Geraldo Rivera's show. Like, it was a talk show, you know, and the skinheads start fighting and banging chairs on each other's heads. You said Geraldo. I was like, you got to be more specific. There was a lot of that on there. Well, Geraldo <laughs> had a talk show in, like, the 80s. Like Jerry Springer picked up picked up that whole thing, but I think Geraldo and Phil Donahue were doing it first. Kind of the OGs, yeah. Yeah, and it was just like a talk show, and they'd have a bunch of yahoos in the audience, and they'd bring these people out and just basically egg them on to start fighting. Tom Mesker was this clown, and uh, he got shut down by Southern Poverty Law Center. They kind of sued him out of business because these skinheads up in Portland, Oregon killed this guy and they did a civil and the Southern Poverty Law Center did a civil case murder encouragement or something so there was some news out there but it was also the sticks meanwhile back in Oceanside which is a sleazy Marine Corps town they got a waste disposal mafia they got fights in the streets you know hookers everywhere drug dens it was just a great news town but there was a little quiet neighborhood kind of outside the main part of the town. And there was this cute little girl named Leticia Hernandez. And she was playing outside in her parents' uh, very tiny fence front yard in this neighborhood of little stucco houses. And her mother and I believe her grandmother were both about six feet away. 
The front door's open, the windows are open. Friends and relatives lived on either side. You know, there's lots of grandmas on front porches. This was the old working class Mexican neighborhood of Oceanside. And Leticia Hernandez, she's seven years old. She just disappears. She's there one minute. She's playing with her dolls right outside the front door. A little garden size thing with flower beds and a mailbox and a fence on a little walkway to the door. And she vanished. And we did not have a lot of those stories in those days. So the whole town is covered in flyers with her first grade school picture. She's got her braided ponytail over her shoulder, smiling, and is cutest little girl. And all the police reporters were on the story. And it's a big deal. It makes the L.A. news. It makes the big TV news shows. We were about 90 minutes south of Los Angeles. Like in the, like in the Tom Waits song, Diamonds, Diamonds on My Windshield. You know, he says, like, Oceanside, it ends the ride. <laughs> and San Clemente coming up, you know. <laughs> so all these front page stories, all the flyers and the searches, they add up to nothing. The girl is gone. So after it calms down a little bit, Art Bell, the late night radio host, who was out of Las Vegas at the time, uh, it's a clear coast channel. Coast. Yeah. It, yeah, I don't remember if it was if it had become coast to coast yet as the title. Yeah, yeah, he had some different titles, but he was on late night and he's yeah, doing yeah, this yeah. thing. You know, this is nineteen end of nineteen eighty nine, beginning of nineteen ninety, and it's a clear channel in the West, so you pick it up at night everywhere. Everybody, if you had your radio on, you listen to Art Bell, and he's got a psychic on the line, a guy named John Monty. And I want to read you a couple lines from this United Press International Wire story I dug up. This is from April 3rd, 1981, a decade earlier. Dateline, Quincy, Massachusetts. A self-employed house painter who claims to have psychic powers predicted on a taped radio show on March 4 that President Ronald Reagan would be shot sometime toward the end of March, but would survive. Psychic John Monty, 30, of Quincy, told the Brockton Enterprise that on March 3, he had a premonition about the president, which he wrote down. Monty announced it on a telephone hookup with a New Hampshire radio station the next day. The prediction was confirmed by the station WKBR of Manchester, New Hampshire. This is what he wrote. There is sadness around President Reagan. I feel he will be shot in the left side of his body after a speech in Washington. I feel it will happen by the end of March, but the president will live. So he read it the next night on WKBR, uh, which featured him on a two-hour talk show hosted by Rudy Nelson. In confirming that Monty made the prediction on his 6 to 8 p.m. talk show March 4, Nelson said, quote, we consider him our resident psychic. The phones go bananas when he's on. Monty gives his predictions from his Quincy apartment by telephone. So Reagan was shot on March 30th and survived after being shot on his left side and the chest. 
And the guy who shot him is a popular liberal on Twitter now. <laughs> just... So it goes. Yeah. <laughs> so other people claim to have the, the premonition as well, but Monty's was confirmed. And he had a pretty good track record uh, before that, although later in life, as he got better known after uh, the incident I'm going to tell you about, you'd see his predictions in a national inquirer or whatever they pay you when you've gotten a little notoriety as a psychic. And those were all you know, no good. But Johnny Monty had helped out a number of uh, uh, New England cold cases. He would touch things belonging to missing people the victim, whoever it was, and he'd get these impressions. And he was pretty well known in New England from the crime section of the newspaper when Stephen King wrote The Dead Zone about a mild-mannered psychic named Johnny Smith. But Johnny Monty, he'd found a three-year-old boy in Maine who'd been kidnapped from Northern California and survived. Uh, Monty led the police to him. So, so that, this guy ha- had, like, some bona fides. Oh, like, yeah, he had yeah. a good track record. Yeah. Yeah, he was for real. He did not make any claims that he was never wrong or anything, but sometimes he got these impressions. So yeah. that's why he's on Art Bell. And this is in the weeks after the disappearance of Letitia Hernandez. So a radio listener in Oceanside or somewhere in North San Diego County heard him on the show, calls in on the west of the Rockies line and asked John Monty if he got any impression from hearing about this little seven-year-old girl, Letitia Hernandez. And he must have said something like, yeah, I'd need to be there, uh, stand in the place where she vanished, etc. So my newspaper publisher, this old boy from Virginia, Tom Missett, this big tall guy with like a handlebar mustache and a suit and suspenders and everything. He hears about the radio show and he hires John Monty to fly out to California and find Letitia Hernandez. So they put a couple of um, cops reporters on the story along with our one reporter who was bilingual, who spoke Spanish, Dan Trotta. And, you know, all I could do is watch from afar because I'm out covering the Farm Bureau. But it was fascinating. And I did see him, though. I'd see him in the newsroom, and he was this kind of scatterbrained character. He seemed kind of lost in the world. He's always eating candy bars. He was like a little boy lost, you know? And he seemed sincere. Everybody liked him and sort of watched out for him. He'd never been to the West Coast. And Oceanside was just a wild town. Like, don't don't lose it. You know, don't let him go out there. The hookers will get him or something. <laughs> so he takes all these notes... And he filled these yellow legal pads with impressions and thoughts and little drawings and single words, whatever. And after a week, he went home and his yellow legal pads went in a file cabinet in the newspaper's morgue. That's that's what newspapers called libraries, the morgue. Um, That's where all the back issues were, the microfiche, you know, whatever stuff from big stories, investigations. So a year and three months passes from the time she disappeared and then Leticia Hernandez's skull is discovered by a caretaker on a rural Indian reservation property on the side of a country two lane about 
25 miles east of Oceanside, uh, going up into the mountains. And by then, I was on the police beat. It was a year or so later, you know, they'd move you around different beats, and I wanted to be on the police beat. So I got put on the story, along with, once again, our, our bilingual reporter, Dan Trotta, who was still there. And I spent a couple of days and really sleepless nights going through all the backstories and especially his yellow legal pads, which I'd take home every night and just sit there with a cup of coffee, going through them, going through them. A lot of them were notes, like names of streets he was on, people he met, you know, writing down dates, just like notes for himself. But then there were things that just didn't make much sense, kind of sketches, drawings, whatever. And I start talking to John on the phone, long distance. He's back east again and trying to make some sense of these notes he left. And he told me, he said, she was dead by the time I was there, but I couldn't say that, you know? I was there with her parents and everything. They were so hopeful. They like, her Christmas presents were still under the tree the second Christmas after she was gone. And, but he said, I, when I was there, she, she had been killed. I felt that very strongly. So then the coroner's report comes out and it confirms it. It says she likely died about three months after her abduction. So Dan Trotta and I decide we're going to go up and check out the property a couple days after the news. Uh, I spoke to John Monty on the phone again the morning before. Yeah, there's no suspects. There's a, it's just a skull. The rest of her wasn't there. I called John again. I said, look, Dan, he knew Dan Trotta. I said, Dan and I are going to drive out there to where she was found. Do you have, you know, any impressions, any thoughts, anything? And he didn't really. But before I say I got to go, he says, oh, take care of yourself out there. It's not going to be a very friendly day out there. Somebody's going to pull a gun on you. And then he pauses and he says, but no one's going to shoot. Just be careful. Be polite. I said, oh, yeah, I'll be real polite if anybody pulls a gun on me, you know. And he pauses again and he says, uh, actually, two people are going to pull guns on you and Dan. A rifle and a handgun. But no one, no one's getting hurt, no gunfire, just, just be careful. So I tell Dan that as we're driving out on the little two-lane, and he starts shaking his head. He's like, are you sure you want to go out there? Well, we're, we're just going to look at the place and see if there's anything, because all it was was side of the road. What is, you know, that, there's not a lot of closure in that. So we go off, we pull off on the side of the road. It's the, the 76. California 76. We park. We were in my pickup. And we get out and we're walking around. And Dan says, oh, look, there's some police tape. So we walk over where the police tape is. And there's some old oak trees, you know, California live oaks and just rural hills. We're looking around. There's really nothing to see. And all of a sudden, this guy says, hey. And we look over and there's this, this Indian dude across from us in the trees 
and he's got a rifle or a shotgun pointed right at us. And I kind of raise my eyebrows over to Dan, and he just nods. And I say, hi, we're, we're just from the newspaper in Oceanside. And he said, this is private land. I'm the caretaker here. You know, you're not allowed. I said, look, I didn't see any no trespassing signs. We're 10 feet off the road. We're not doing anything. And he's like, yeah, well, you better da da da. And at that moment, a CHP black and white goes by, sees what's going on, stops. That guy runs out and draws his service revolver or whatever he's got. And there we go, two guns pulled on us within two minutes or something. So now the caretaker guy lowers his, and he says, I'm the caretaker here, it's legal for me to da-da-da. And he's like, okay, buddy, just, you know, put it down. He's like, what are you guys doing? We've got on top, you know, we look like reporters. We got on like button downs and ties and we're holding notepads. We're from the newspaper. This is where the the girl's skull was discovered. And so everybody calms down and it's resolved. Thank God, you know. Although that would have been a dramatic end. (laughs) Because the cop would have killed everybody, you know. Two reporters and an Indian reservation caretaker were shot dead by a CHP. So it works out. Then we drive back. And as we drive back and we see the little green sign on the side of the road that says leaving the Indian reservation, this is just bad vibes all around. Everything feels haunted here. In fact, over the years to come, there would be four or five bodies or parts of bodies of abducted girls and women that were found within about 100, 200 feet of their thrown off the uh, the road into the the woods right there. Uh, another one came up about ten years later. And I remember that one because they referenced Leticia Hernandez from 1991, beginning in 1991, in that story in the San Diego paper. So I get back to the newsroom, and I go through those legal pads again, and I notice something I missed before. Every couple of pages in increasingly large, kind of frantic, scratch ballpoint handwriting, John had written the name Paula, P-A-U-L-A, you know, like Paula, underlined or circled or whatever. The skull of Leticia Hernandez was found on the Paula Indian Reservation, P-A-L-A. 25 miles east of Oceanside. It had been dumped there, the detective said, fairly recently before it was found. John Monty knew this a year before it happened and where it happened, but he did not know what it meant. He wasn't from around there. He had no idea there was a a small rural Indian reservation with that same name with different spelling. So we all missed it. And we couldn't have done anything about it anyway, because it had not happened yet. Well, and that's the end of the sad story of Leticia Hernandez. 
west of Washington, a little east of L.A. Desert Oracle Radio. Of all the restaurants in Tucson, which serves the best chimichanga? Gordo's! Which restaurant was singled out for outstanding cleanliness? Gordo's! The best chimichanga served in the cleanest restaurant at the lowest price, Gordo's. So if you like chimichangas, I mean, if you really like chimichangas, come to Gordo's on Broadway, just west of Cove. Well, it's 2024. Planes are falling out of the sky, bombs are falling all over the world, and most of them have a Made in the U.S. of A label. The internet search results are a bunch of artificially intelligent garbage, scraped from scam websites. The last of the written word publications are getting rid of the last humans and or shutting down altogether. Interest rates are still killing people trying to pay off credit cards they have to use in order to just get by. Health insurance is still killing people by the truckload to shave off another couple of pennies per dollar in hospital reimbursements. And to save democracy in 20 and 24, one of the political parties is not allowing elections in the primary season. While hoping it can get the other parties front runner behind bars or at least out of the country before the end of the year. Sometimes you have to repeatedly kill the patient to save the patient, as they say in the health insurance sector. But I've still got my Christmas tree up, a beautiful noble fir that's keeping most of its needles standing right outside the radio studio. The little white lights cheerfully twinkling. And I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet. As the bard of Montreal says, I hope you had a good solstice and Christmas and New Year's and MLK Junior Day stretched out over three or four weeks with a few actual holidays thrown in there if you're lucky. A few crumbs. I've been up at the hot springs with the holy mountain in view. I had decided while I was up there to suspend this radio show for a while on hiatus, etc., and try to shop it around, see if I can get somebody, a station, something to put a little money into it, do a weekly live broadcast as I've longed to do since I came up with this idea a dozen years ago, two versions of the idea. This is one of them. So I sent in the notice to my local station and nobody saw it. Nobody read the email. What the hell? I thought it over for another week and decided, all right, I'll go ahead and do tonight's show, which features my friend Tom Sexton goading me on during the story about the psychic Johnny Monty. I had a live version of that story from the Hakumba Halloween show, but the recording was fried. 
Somebody was standing right by the field recorder and back. Uh, she kept saying, hmm, the whole time. And probably nobody else in the room could hear it, but it's pretty much all that the field recorder picked up. That's about seven out of ten of my live show recordings, by the way. Which is why you never hear most of them. The perils of a one-man show. So thanks to Tom and Terrence at the Trillbillies podcast for letting me borrow a bunch of that story originally recorded for their 2023 Halloween special. But now with a red, blue, black, silver soundtrack. This is year eight and season ten of this show, I guess. And soon I must do the unpleasant act of starting to put some, most of the new episodes behind the paywall. I don't have to tell you why we know what's going on out there. So if you already contribute to our Patreon at DesertOracle.com, you know I appreciate it and you will be getting a lot more exclusive content, as I say over in our corporate branding and exploitation department. And I'm going to be doing more stories like I did tonight. That's a subject near and dear to my heart because it has been the entirety of my working life these past 40 years. Next time I go on the road on tour, I'll be doing a show called... What is it called? I don't know if I'm set on the title yet, but it's a storytelling show, a one-man show, as they say, about all the weird and ridiculous adventures I've had as a working writer, journalist, reporter, editor, all over the world, war all the time, often of my own making, including the ten years of doing Desert Oracle and all kinds of strange excursions with stranger people. A cast of characters that includes Sarah Palin, Hunter Thompson, the Papa John's guy, Hulk Hogan, Lorne Michaels, Edward Abbey, Herb Kane, Sarah K. Smith, Jim Newell, Matt Welch, Bob Shear, Will Hurst, Anna Merlin, Mojo Nixon, Country Dick Montana, Nick Denton, Corey Sika, Alex Perrine, Fran Lebowitz. Characters in the stories, I mean. They won't be on stage. You'll be hearing some of those stories on the podcast over the coming months as I type them up and mixed in with the Desert Oracle material. It's all Desert Oracle material. The Typing Life. I think that's what the show is called. Desert Oracle Radio presents The Typing Life with Ken Lane. That's what it says here on the Playbill cover. This is the best thing that's happened to typing since electricity. The IBM Selectric Typewriter. So that's a rare editor's note on this radio show. Thanks to Red, Blue, Black, Silver. Thanks to you for listening. And good night from the voice of the desert. Roar.